Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining Keeping It Simple. Today's guest is Victor Schwetz, global strategist at McGuire Securities and author of The Great Rupture, which explores the evolution of human society through the rise and fall of empire. I'll drop a link to the book in the chat. Now dial in and relax as we step back and take a look at the bigger picture. Over to you, Mike. Thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate it. Victor, it's a pleasure to have you join us just to, for clarifications. Macquarie is the firm that you're with. Now, they're well known for their work in Asia, and that's where you've been based for years. You recently moved back to or moved to the United States, um, and you're based out of New York now, correct? Correct. Okay. So when you and I last talked, we talked about your book, The Great Rupture, and the dynamics around how the world was going to change very radically going forward. Since our conversation, one of the things that's popped onto the screens is things like AI, which almost fits perfectly with your uh, thesis around the Great Rupture. Maybe you could spend just a few minutes giving us a, um, a, a synopsis of the theory behind the Great Rupture and what, what possessed you to write this book. No, absolutely, and thank you for, for having me. Uh, well, essentially what I try to do is to say uh, there are periods in time which are truly revolutionary, and they really change what we do and how we do things. Uh, and I think we are on the cusp of one of those changes. In fact, we've been going through it since early 1980s, but the speed of change is accelerating. And so what I try to do is to look at the factors that drive the change, but also look at how societies are likely to react, how politics is likely to react, and how does it change functioning of the labor markets as well as capital markets. So in other words, the labor market, the, the role of labor, the role of capital is all going, under, will undergo substantial change. And if we have those changes, what does it mean? Um, and if you start thinking what it means, potentially you go in the very, very dark corners. Uh, and then you would argue, what sort of policies do we need in order to reduce the degree of disruption that societies and economies are likely to experience over the next couple of decades? So it's starting with the past, looking at the past disruption, but then looking into the future and saying, we're really on the cusp of major changes. What do those changes mean? Uh, what does it, do they imply for both policymakers, for people, for capital market professionals? Uh, but also, what policies do we need? How do we get from point A to point B without excessive disruption or without really painful changes? So one of the reasons why I, I really enjoyed your book and I really enjoyed the actual thesis that we're facing in revolutionary change was precisely because you hit on this idea that it happens in episodic fashion, right? In evolutionary terms, it's called punctuated equilibrium, right? Nothing happens. And then everything changes. That's right. Um, the real dynamic that happened with the Industrial Revolution, and I would encourage people to read any of the papers by Joel Moker and others. I'm actually going to write my weekend substack about this. And so I'll put some of the links in there, encourage people to take a look at this. But the real revolution in the Industrial Revolution was actually to radically expand the quantity of goods that could be purchased, right? Prior to the 18th century, there really was not a lot of difference in terms of the goods that were available in you know, England in 1750 versus the goods that were available in England in 1050, right? Your, right. your, your underwear would have been made out of homespun you know, woolen cloth. 
you would have changed it once a week, much to the joy of those who are close to you who wouldn't have known any better. The idea of decorative uh, uh, clothing or attire simply did not exist, right? And so one of the critiques that existed about labor prior to the Industrial Revolution was just they didn't work very hard. But the simple reality, and this is what Joel Mocher points out, is that there was nothing for them to buy, right? Other than perhaps beer, right? So if you're limited in your purchase basket, why would you buy something new? Now, the Industrial Revolution led to a flourishing of products. We obviously saw the spice trade and those things emerge as well. The demand for novelties suddenly created the demand for goods and products that you could offer to your wonderful lady friends to attract them to your home so that you were actually able to live a different and interesting life. When we look at this time period and we look at one of the characteristics that's underway, it's that young men increasingly are choosing to stay with their families, not get married, the age of marriage is being delayed, et cetera. In your mind, is this a similar phenomenon? Are we seeing effectively a younger generation saying, what's the point? Why would I bother to participate given these dynamics? Yeah, uh, essentially, what you're seeing is a disintermediation of a labor market. What you correctly, Michael, highlighted, that we've gone from basically having very broad skills prior to Industrial Revolution to having very, very specific uh, skills. And those skills have to be fine-tuned over your time and the time of your country, gradually uh, getting better and better and more and more productive. And essentially, humans were the brain of the machines. And as a machine evolved, the brain needed to evolve at the same time. Now, that's what was driving educational standards. That was driving elimination of illiteracy. Then there was a secondary education, college education, and everything had to be more and more specialized compared to what it would have been in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. What started to happen from, we can debate whether it's late 70s or late 80s, what started to happen is that the need for specialist skills started to deteriorate uh, and the need for much broader skills started to increase. Uh, gradually, the professions started to disappear or professions started to change beyond recognition. I mean, it's all started with the vice presidents and anybody who was feeding information to CEOs uh, back in 1980s, early 90s. You had the whole army of people who needed to do that because it could take CEO a week or two just to understand what is happening with his companies. And then suddenly revolution started all around PC and the CEO could get all the information he needs by mid 1990s within a day, by late 1990s, uh, almost in a split second. So the whole army of people who were enforcing the edicts or, or conveying information was no longer needed. And then, of course, it progressed into civilian usage. In other words, this was the broadband started to appear. So suddenly the performance realized that, hey, you know what? People just need to buy one song they like. They don't need to buy the entire album. They don't need to buy the entire CD. So there was a massive disruption occurring in entertainment industry. The same started to happen in um, anything to do with digits. Um, you know, we used to have hundreds of traders uh, when I was based in New York with Deutsche Bank uh, uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. 
So now we don't have that. Well, certainly Deutsche Bank doesn't have it, but most other people don't. So anybody that deals with the digital information uh, found their jobs changing uh, beyond, beyond recognition. Uh, and it goes on. The same applies, as I said, to journalists. The same applies to traders. Anybody who uh, deals with any news flow, uh, the same applies to middle management. Uh, and that sort of a disruption started to change professions, to change the lines of uh, progression that you would expect. Now, the next stage is not just manipulating digits, but manipulating physical matter, manipulating atoms. Uh, that is uh, anything from robotics and automation uh, to alternative energy platforms, alternative transport platforms, fusion of infotech and biotech. Now, that's starting to widen the field even more. So gradually it started impacting, uh, you know, drivers and plumbers, uh, manufacturing plants within the next five, 10 years will start disappearing. Supply and value chains will become much more narrow than what they are today. Uh, in fact, globalization is dying a natural death. Um, technology basically is killing it. The only thing what's occurring is that the social tensions and geopolitical tensions accelerating this process. But globalization as an arbitrage on the cost side, an arbitrage of opportunities and efficiency is dying away. A new globalization will appear in the next 10 years, 15 years, but it's not going to be based on a cost arbitrage. So you can see one profession after another is starting to experience declining marginal utility. So in other words, more and more tasks are taken away from you. Uh, and when you reach a critical stage, and there are articles by Darren Asimoglu and other guys, who basically tries to compute at what stage when your tasks are taken away that your wages and your pricing power starts to diminish. In other words, not only you're not as happy with your life, because you're not doing as well or as much as you expected. Uh, but on top of that, your marginal pricing power starts to decline. Uh, and, and, and that's what the book was discussing, that it's not about average changes, it's about marginal uh, that matters. And what the new generation, certainly anybody born after sort of 1980 experiencing, is this feeling of the erosion of marginal utility erosion of marginal pricing power. The longer you sit in that chair, the less valuable you become, unless you change the way you do things. Uh, and, so, and so younger generation quite correctly recognizing that traditional values, traditional way of progression or professions or training uh, will no longer yield the type of results that the previous generations would have experienced. Uh, and so they are trying to find an alternative way and that's why I usually compare them much more to generation of uh, pre, uh, sort of during World War II, in other words, pre-baby boomers. Uh, they want much more of a community spirit. They want greater reliance on the government and the state. Basically, the state becomes one of those guardrails protecting them against the whirlwind of change, against massive disruption that they're facing. Just look at Chad GPT. Uh, it's almost guaranteed within five years, any white collar employee uh, will, will, will face almost a death valley. Uh, so in other words, what they're going to do will be so drastically different to anything they would have done. Now, it doesn't mean that the job disappears, but what it does mean that if investment bank was recruiting, call it 100 graduates, 
in order to whittle it down to maybe 20 who will survive. Now they will only recruit 50 and maybe only two will be needed uh, at the end of this process. So what you do, how you do it, and ChatGPT is just one part. The other part of it, of course, is anything to do with quantum computing, uh, anything to do with machine learning, anything to do with 3D printing, uh, it starts spreading that evolution much, much wider. And so if we were sitting here 10, 15 years from now, the definition of labor, what does labor actually do? The definition of productivity, what is meant by productivity? The definition of what capital does, uh, I think will be very significantly different. Victor, so are you saying that's that why it snowflakes explains why younger generation behaves are, differently. Are, are you applying that snowflakes and millennials like you're pushing this trope they don't want to go work? No, I don't think I don't think it is the case. I think Yuval Harari once uh, correctly highlighted that the essence of, uh, in the context of universal basic income guarantee, the essence of UBI uh, is not to make people lazy, but to compensate for their irrelevancy, uh, and and that's the essence of it. It's not laziness that is driving, for example, UBI. Uh, it is a fact that humans are becoming progressively less uh, valuable. Uh, and as I said, it shifts from profession to profession, it shifts from service to service, but eventually, and a lot of people say, hey, you know what, uh, we used to have a buggy driver who become a truck driver. Uh, uh, and that's true. They used to be an agricultural guy, a peasant who become a factory worker, and then it become a different factory worker. Isn't it going to go exactly the same way that we will find alternative ways of doing it? Now, whenever I think about it, I always reminded of Kevin Drum comments. He said, look at the upheaval that industrial revolutions have done. And all it did, it complemented muscle power. Could you imagine what replacing cognition is going to do? Uh, and, so, and, and so to me, it's not a snowflake. It's not that they're lazy. Uh, it is a perception, which is accurate, uh, that you need to understand that the conventional progression paths, conventional professions, conventional way of making money uh, or generating income is not going to work. So uh, one of the things uh, Lara Tyson was describing, which is I also think is very accurate, what will happen 10 years from now if technology reaches the stage that even the highly educated people will find that they cannot deploy their labor at a socially acceptable rate? Uh, at a rate of income that will provide them with, with the sorts of uh, well, welfare or other means to, to actually have a decent lifestyle. Uh, and that is true. That's that's a core. What and will so happen if we reach that stage? So your you, point- You don't want me to ask where the money is gonna come from to pay for the UBI. Like some, doesn't someone have to go and work and, or, or you believe in MMT? Yeah, <clears throat> well, I do. Uh, in a sense, in a sense, basically my argument uh, has always been, if I could go to not neoliberal, but liberal world, <clears throat> the way I experienced it back in 1980s, if, if I could go back, <laughs> uh, I would do that. Uh, but the problem is there is no time machine to take me back. Uh, the only thing we can do is to move forward. Uh, and as you start thinking about moving forward, uh, what I describe in the book as Fujiwara effect, which is merge of two hurricanes. One is a financialization that we have done over the last 30 or 40 years, where we completely decouple uh, money supply and credit from underlying uh, economic activity. And the other one, information age, which is a technological progression. That's sort of a merge of those two hurricanes. 
uh, is displacing everything, is displacing the role of labor, is displacing usefulness of labor, is displacing how capital works. <clears throat> when people say, how are we going to pay? My goodness, how did we pay for everything else? Uh, if you think of the United States, for example, for the last 40 years, money supply grew two or three times faster than nominal GDP consistently. Now, where, what's the difference between those two lines? The difference between those two lines are assets. This is your 401ks, this is your pensions, this is your houses. If you ever try to bring those two lines together, the social and political consequences of that will be totally unacceptable. Um, and, and that's part of the reason why I even support central banks. One of the things I've argued that over the last four years, Federal Reserve might have done a perfect job uh, going into COVID they ensure that we don't have a deflationary bust. Coming out of COVID, they're ensuring we don't have a deflationary bust. And if inflation comes off, which I'm saying it would uh, as we progress forward, then it's almost a perfect job. You've achieved all of that in those four years without causing massive dislocation, either economically or, or in terms of asset prices. So I accept that it is inevitable that financialization cannot be unwound. Before we go, I I, I, one more thing before we go on, uh, just with you and Michael, did you say that that people are becoming more or less skillful? That their their skills are broadening or they're narrowing? I mean, I think well, that today we need more narrow skills, more specialization is what's required in today's economy. But you just said the opposite, or did I hear it wrong? I do. <clears throat> no, you've 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 heard correctly. Uh, one of the things I discussed in the book is that our educational system is still structured. Uh, on industrial age lines, uh, that gradually you increase and increase the degree of specialization required. Uh, what we should do is to restructure it backwards. Uh, in a sense, bachelor's degree should disappear altogether. Uh, the only people completing bachelor degree should be the people who pursue some kind of academic career. Uh, what you should have is the very rapid succession of certificates and training done in various areas where you can change from the culinary classes to IT, from paintings to um, virtual media, to coding, to anything else you want to do. So the pressure over the next 10 years will be to broaden the skills, not to narrow. But today's educational system is actually continued to be designed to narrow it. Um, sorry. I don't know why my I don't know it is okay Victor we'll we'll get a we'll get a technology specialist over to help you out his his specialized (laughs) skill of zoom has been kind of broadened. that's right that's right that's right and and think how we're broadening our skills in many other ways you know when when I was a younger man you used to have a secretary today you're your own secretary now you can you you can do it almost as good as a secretary did but what you're doing secretary cannot do so you can see how the skills are, 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 are widening and they will continue, they will have to continue doing so. So this is actually, I, I, I want to show a couple of slides that I had sure. shared with Victor and the rest of the team um, that hit on some of these components, right? And so let me very quickly share this screen. Okay, so the first slide I'm showing here, this is showing the uh, slide that we're all very familiar with, the declining value of the dollar on the left-hand side. And I'm actually highlighting importantly, the multiple revisions of CPI, right? So we've changed the baskets, we've changed the way that we think about inflation. 
And in each of those, we've actually managed to continue to see a falling value of the US dollar. Now, the reason that I find this so interesting is the chart on the right, which is the share of household expenditures. So if I see the value of the dollar falling, theoretically, I would expect that I'm going to see the value of apparel or clothing or a fine men's suit rising over time. And yet over the course of this same chart that shows the value of the dollar collapsing, the amount of money that an average household spends on clothing has fallen from 14% of the household budget to today that number sits at 2.6%. And by the way, so this is drawn from a BLS study that dates back to 2006. When I originally looked at this data set, I only had available through 2003, just for the heck of it, I actually ran a forecast using a logarithmic um, forecast on this uh, on this level. It actually came out and said that by 2021, we would expect it to be 2.9%. And the actual answer in, in 2021, after inflation of 10% drove, drove apparel prices up relative to incomes, was that it was at 2.6%. So we're actually falling faster. If I extend this out using the exact same technique, it suggests that by 2050, we'll actually be looking at clothing being totally free. Or you'll be right. naked. What's That's that? Or you'll be naked. Well, well we, we could return to the trees, and Harley is quite a bit hairier than I am, so he'll be better covered. <laughs> but it's um, that's not an image anyone really wants for either of us. But this is actually, it, and, and by the way, if you extend it further, and I'm going to laugh as I say this, right? The next step is you get paid to wear clothes, right? Those who yes. want to advertise their wares begin showing you, begin paying people to wear their clothes. It's already happening with the influencers, et cetera, right? So there's a very real component to what Victor is highlighting. Now the fly in the ointment so far has been the relative productivity. The reason we see the falling value of the dollar has been the relative productivity of goods versus services, right? So while goods have, uh, have uh, declined in value significantly or fallen as a share of our purchasing basket, services have exploded. And I actually was just walking somebody else through this chart, but I'm gonna flip over to another screen here just to show this quickly here. This is looking at the um, consumption of, I'm gonna pull this up here, I apologize. This is looking at the consumption of goods per capita in the United States since 1959 and services per capita since 1959. And the astonishing thing here is, is that what you discover is, is that the consumption of goods per capita has grown by about 450% over that whole time period. In other words, we have four and a half times as many clothes, refrigerators, cars, et cetera, on a per capita basis than we would have had in the 1950s, right? A chicken in every pot has now become four and a half chickens in every four and a half pots that we each have. On the flip side of that, we've seen services consumption, right? The consumption of services per capita rise not 4.5 times over that time period, but 43 times over that time period, right? In other words, what we consume has increasingly become a function of the services economy. And that services economy fails under the rubric that Victor has been highlighting, right? Because it doesn't have the same productivity characteristics, right? Now, sure. 
the crazy component that is actually introduced here, the reason we were able to do this on the good side is automation, mechanization, robots, et cetera. We call all those things productivity enhancing capital investments that have taken our capacity from producing a bushel of corn in 1850 to our capacity to make delicious Twinkies complete with high fructose corn syrup in the 1990s to today, we now have organic Twinkies that have food that is healthy for you and prevents cancer, right? Now it's obviously an overstatement, but it would give you an idea of the sort of productivity enhancements that we've experienced. The really interesting question for me is, does AI represent that fundamental break that suddenly turns services into traded goods? And so they no longer suffer from things like Balmol's cost disease, where ultimately I can't access that labor unless I'm willing to pay the higher price for it. Yeah. What's, what's your, yes. is, is that consistent with how you're thinking about this, Victor? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, the, way, the way I basically describe it is everything is going to zero. Uh, yep. So no matter what it is, uh, it is going to be zero. And in fact, in most cases, as you highlighted, uh, you will be paid in various forms. Uh, it doesn't have to be money, but you will be paid to consume a lot of those things. So in other words, the cost will actually be uh, below zero. Uh, and what, you, what you're seeing is that on the good side, there are further productivity gains to be made. So if you think of, if you think of new factories, think of the United States, uh, manufacturing output in the US for about 20 years until 2008 was only growing about 1%. Uh, now, that meant against global growth rates of three and a half, four percent that the U.S. was consistently losing global market share. Over the last decade or so, U.S. manufacturing output started to grow at more like three, three and a half percent. So U.S. started to match global numbers. So U.S. no longer is losing relative market share. So that's a true manufacturing revolution is occurring. But then if you look at investments, and if you look at employment, you don't see that uh, in a sense that if you think of uh, non-residential private fixed asset investment in the US, uh, today, roughly 55% is going into technology, IT, uh, software, intangibles. So overall, uh, companies in the US investing the same amount of money as they did in the 70s, uh, they're roughly investing 13, 14% of GDP but uh, only around 40% goes into real hard assets, you know, the buildings, the machinery, uh, and the rest of it. Uh, and that's why most people don't see it. And they say companies in the US under investing, but they are not. They're just investing into the future. So what that implies is that it's still very hard to establish manufacturing in the US. There are many rules, there's too many problems. But as soon as you've established that, there is really no need for fixed assets and there is no need for employment. That's why manufacturing employment in that period dropped from 10% of the labor force to eight. And so you can see how manufacturing itself will keep on driving the cost. As you correctly said, uh, services are not that because services are contingent uh, on humans, as you described them. Uh, could chat GDP and other technologies, uh, right. GPT is not going to be the end of it. Uh, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't have the neurons of human brain, but that's not the point. The point is we don't need to replicate human brain. Uh, we just need them to be very, very good uh, in a very selected niches. Uh, and that's what they're going to be. Uh, could that then start disintermediating the services? So in other words, what people in Omaha and Ohio and Michigan have experienced 
uh, through 1980s and 1990s? Is it coming to the East Coast and the West Coast uh, in the service area? Uh, the answer is yes. And so ultimately, the productivity will mushroom. The way I basically look at it, prior to, um, prior to the first industrial revolution, productivity growth rates were very slow. They were about 10, 10 bips per annum, if, if you're lucky. And that's why, Michael, you correctly said that if you look at 1400s, 1500s, early 1700s, there was, not a, there was not a huge amount of difference. At the end of the first industrial revolution, call it 1850s, 1860s, productivity was more like 100 basis points, uh, or almost 100 basis points. By the time we go into 50s and 70s, it was more like 2%. <clears throat> and so now productivity is down. And productivity is down because when you're in the middle of revolution, productivity goes down, not up. Because what you're doing, you're dislocating too many variables in the economy. And economy needs to adjust. And that takes about two generations. So you're looking at 50, 70 years, usually, mm -hmm. uh, for productivity to mushroom. And if you put your criteria being early 1980s or mid-1980s as a beginning, that puts you some, sometime into 2030s or 2040s. Uh, when a productivity won't just go from 50 bips to 100, 150 bips, it's got to go to 500 bips <laughs> very easily. And, Victor, and that, so, sorry. Uh, we, we, Mike and I, you may not know this, I've, I've, you know, I had a small disagreement about inflation. He's, he's still not right yet, but there's time. You're right. We're going to 2030. Then I guess transitory could go that far also. The last chart he showed kind of supports my thinking that the, the reason why we have inflation and, and it's not going below 4% anytime soon is that it's more service driven. And with the boomers retiring and lack of immigration, we have this you know, chokehold on, on, on labor um, and the demand for services. How do you square that concept with your idea that we're gonna go into, if not disinflation, deflation? Yeah, <clears throat> I, I actually uh, tend to push back on all of those arguments. Uh, in a sense, in a sense, <laughs> in a sense that, uh, First of all, I don't agree with running out of labor. I, I usually say to people, uh, look, did you think we're running out of labor on the 1st of January, 2020? Did you think we were running out of commodities or goods on the 1st of January, 2020? The answer was no. Uh, what happened in the last three years? Well, people say, well, it's because we've stimulated economy too much. Now, the reality is aggregate demand in the U.S. now is only about 100 basis points higher than it would have been without COVID. If you think of UK, Eurozone, Japan, and certainly China, they're well below this trajectory. So globally, you can't argue that we have access demand. So that's my first point. I don't believe there is access demand. And the only country where it exists, it's gradually coming off. In other words, the goods are normalizing, the services are normalizing, real deposits are coming back to trajectory. So I don't believe we are running out of people. The second thing I tend to highlight is that we're actually not measuring people properly. And that's one of the things I keep highlighting in my notes, that if we are measuring people properly, uh, the proportion of labor force in the US in multiple jobs will not be four and a half, five percent because remember it stayed at around 5% for two decades. I can't believe that we only have seven and a half, eight million people who are reputedly only working more than one job. Secondly, we should see a lot more uh, self-employed people. Again, self-employment as a percentage of labor force remained flat uh, at 10% at for, for two decades. Thirdly, we should see more hours. 
Ours are stuck between 34 and a half and 35 hours for God knows how long. So to me, uh, BLS is not capturing the changing labor force, particularly in the US and UK, less so in other countries. And the reason for that is simple, that in the US, government does not support employment. It supports either corporates or it supports people, but not the employment. So if you were in Germany, a bartender in January 2020, or if you're in Sydney, Australia, bartender in January 20, you're still bartender today. What happened in the US and to a lesser extent UK, you were thrown out into the street very quickly. And so the question is, what did you do with your free time? And the answer is, given the flexibility of the US labor market, given very large gray economy, which could be as high as three to $4 trillion at least, you found alternative ways of piecing revenue together, stitching it together, which doesn't correspond to employment. You do a little bit of Amazon, you do a little bit of NFT trading, you do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So the good news in that is that I think we're grossly understating the income in the country. Uh, the bad news, we're overstating uh, extent of labor pressures. So in other words, labor participation is higher, employment is higher, hours of work much higher, and hours, dollars per hour are much, much lower. So when a restaurant owner says, look, I want you uh, as, a, as, as a guy I just sacked two years ago, come back and be a bartender. This bartender will say, hey, I'm doing other things. If you want me, uh, you need to pay me 20% more. So BLS is not capturing the difference in income between what he does today and a new bartender wages. All they're capturing is a high bartender wages. So that's the second thing. I think there is a lot more people, there is a lot more employment occurring than what the numbers suggest. The third area is yes, legal immigration is down, but illegally over the last sort of 18 months, 5 million people crossed the border, a couple of million already disappeared. So if you live in places like Australia or Singapore uh, or New Zealand, which are contained, uh, have extremely harsh immigration policy, has no illegal immigration, they do have a major problem because they shut down the country like for two years. Australia alone will miss six, eight hundred thousand people. So those sorts of countries have a choice. Either you become Japan and start deploying a lot of labor replacement or you open up your borders. That's why the last couple of months in Australia was the highest immigration ever uh, into Australia. They basically open up the borders. So I don't buy that argument either. Uh, in terms of the services, I, I, I accept that services are stickier and services tend to be much more difficult to bring the cost down. But that's where you start heading into much more greater deployment of technology uh, as we go forward. That's going to start reducing those numbers. So, so to me, when I look at it, I basically say, uh, we have strong disinflationary pressures, technology that we discussed, financialization, uh, which is indebtedness that we have, reliance on asset prices, demographics, inequalities. Because a lot of people say baby boomers are retiring. If they're retiring, they'll be spending money. That means neutral rates should go up. But the problem is people who have money these days uh, are actually accumulating money faster than their capacity to spend. Because if you think of the United States, top 10% of households control over 70% of uh, national wealth. Top 1% control about 35%. That very much corresponds to the age groups. They tend to be the older people. 
So that are they accumulating assets faster than their capacity to either consume or to provide for their retirement. Now that actually is disinflationary uh, rather than inflationary the way it normally would be if income and wealth distribution uh, was much more even uh, compared to what it is globally. So to me, whether I look at demographics, whether I look at inequalities, whether I look at labor market, I, I don't see what you've just done. So when you're, you're, when you're critiquing US government policy of how we support businesses and, uh, and other various things, you, you indicated, I think, in a prior discussion commentary that you think the way China is operating is a superior long-term process and that over the course of time, the West would move towards a Chinese model versus China moving towards a US model. Did I, did I hear that correctly? Uh, no, I, not, not quite. Uh, in a sense, in a sense, a problem China has is that they fused private and public to an extent that there is really no room, uh, no free room at all. So in other words, there is no light between public and private. Central banks in China, a central bank in China is not independent. Commercial banks are not really commercial and there is really no private sector anymore. So when you fuse it to that extent, there is a question mark as to how you're gonna grow. Uh, now, so, so to me, the best answer, and that's the way I describe to my Chinese friends, is that it is true, uh, Xi Jinping and the government in China connect very proactive. They connect very aggressively. If they identify the problem and say, this is a solution, they can do it tomorrow. Uh, if they identify this is what we don't want to happen, they can do it tomorrow. The way I describe it is that you cut somebody's head off and if you made a mistake, you can glue it back on and say, you'll be, you'll be okay. You'll be feeling okay. Uh, give it a day or two and you'll be, and you'll be fine. So, so the question to me is the challenges we're facing in China and the US are not dissimilar. If you think of Biden discussing unaffordable housing, unaffordable healthcare, unaffordable education, uh, should broadband be a human right uh, rather than uh, a private business? the role of social and digital platforms. Xi Jinping is discussing a lot of similar issues and trying to look at similar issues. The difference between the West and China is that in China, you can do things very quickly because there is no independent sources of power. There is no independent judiciary. There is no independent media. Uh, none of that exists. And the argument Chinese will say is that, yes, if we make a decision and it's a wrong one, we can unmake it within 24 hours. True. But what are the consequences of making a decision and then unmaking it uh, so quickly? What does it do uh, to ability to invest, ability to innovate, ability to invent? If you think of China, China has been the greatest innovative nation in the world over the last 40 years but they invented absolutely nothing. That is the reason why both Donald Trump, uh, as well as Joe Biden, can kneecap uh, their technology industry as quickly as that, as, they, as they're doing. Uh, because China completely relying on the Western uh, uh, knowledge and on the Western science. Now, creating science is not about spending billions of dollars. It's about building on the shoulders of generations. Uh, over a period of time. So the question that becomes, with, we're facing the same problems, solutions in both cases, also the same. It basically more of the government. Don't you require specialized skills to go and, and, and create technology, new ideas? So, well, 
all I'm saying, the solutions are the same, are similar in a sense. Uh, United States and China underinvested massively in the basic research and fundamental research. Most of the research in both countries were applied research, not, not fundamental. Uh, Joe Biden is totally right to saying we've been living on the bank of research that was created in 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. We need to accelerate fundamental research. Uh, only the government can do that. You know, Google doesn't do research, fundamental research, neither does Facebook. Uh, it's basically asking questions that you don't even know whether there is an answer. <clears throat> and uh, when, when Xi Jinping is discussing accelerating fundamental research, he's, he's correct, but only the government can do it. Uh, if you think of uh, uh, healthcare, education, housing, only the government can make a difference uh, to those sectors. So solutions in many ways are the same, more of the government. The difference you don't think is- Google or Microsoft have a Bell Labs type operation? No, they don't. Oh. <clears throat> even, even By the, the way, my son of, works at Microsoft Research. Sorry. Yeah, even, even the head of X Lab, which is Google, said we don't do we do not do undirectional research. So, in other words, we don't do basic research. Uh, that is not done at Google. Uh, that can only be funded uh, directly by by the government. Uh, and, and the reason for that is very simple: it doesn't have commerciality to it. It doesn't have. Um, it, it doesn't have immediacy to it or a payoff to it. And bulk of fundamental research is wasted for the sake of finding one or two discoveries uh, that actually could make a significant difference. So, so my answer is, in both cases, greater role for the government. The difference is a degree or the magnitude. Do you eliminate any free space between the government and the private enterprise? Do you eliminate any free space in educational institutions or, or labs? Do you preclude them from talking to people in other countries? Do you preclude them from exchanging information in other countries? So, so the difference to me is we're heading in the same direction, more of the government. What I'm hoping for is that in the West, we will find a solution which will still keep sufficient degree of freedom, both individual freedom, corporate freedom, innovative freedom, compared to what China uh, is likely to have. So one of the things that I want to share a couple more slides, because I think um, first, I also want to invite questions from the audience into the Q&A, because I can't believe that Victor can say some of the things he's saying and not get a response. I know I personally want to jump through the screen on some of these, even as I agree very deeply with what Victor is saying. In many ways, it feels incredibly frustrating to me, but it is also unfortunately very much in fitting with the fact pattern that we have. So a couple of slides that I wanted to show. One is actually looking at the dynamics of what drove the industrial revolution, what drove the expansion of trade. And this is actually, again, pulling from Joel Moker, the institutional uh, origins of the industrial revolutions. He wrote a paper on this. And I encourage people to read it. It's really fascinating. But one of the things that he highlights is the expansion of trade outside of kinship circles, where effectively I would only trade with those who lived in my village or happened to be part of the McAllen clan, for example, into much broader organizations because of the creation of systems of trust that were created by things like the Bank of England, systems of credit, the ability to record data in double entry bookkeeping, et cetera. And one of the technologies that appears to be facilitating this dynamic of trust across regimes without requiring a central authority 
right? In other words, allowing me to trade not just within the Green family, but also within the Bassman family, where candidly, I don't consider them particularly trustworthy, but yet would still choose to, to trade with them if I could achieve a degree of trust that Harley will follow through on his promises, which never happens usually, but will make an exception this time is this idea of the decentralized blockchain, that this is effectively similar to a double entry bookkeeping, et cetera. Do you have any perspective on, uh, on, on that observation? Well, first of all, in, in terms of uh, John Walker, I, I, I agree. Uh, it was a trust uh, and that trust had many layers. Uh, one of the layers was a uh, common law. Mm -hmm. uh, the other layer was independent institutional pillars, whether it was a Bank of England, uh, whether it was independent media. So gradually over time, all of those pillars were sort of grown and developed. And it enabled uh, people at different parts of the world, at different parts of the country to trade, to interact. That in turn, as Douglas North always highlighted, reduces transaction costs. It basically reduces the friction. As you reduce the friction, cost comes down, uh, there is more collaboration uh, and, and, and becomes greater affordability. Uh, the problem I have with, uh, uh, with the blockchain, at least the way it has developed uh, in a cryptocurrency space, that most of the promises of uh, independence, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of the promises of uh, limited supply uh, all of those things never really come to pass. We always find how to multiply supply, no matter how limited it is. Uh, we always find that you will end up with certain people trying to oligopolize or monopolize, uh, whether it's a supply of an instrument, whether it's transaction, whether it's mining. Uh, and, so, and so theoretically, um, it, it can work. Uh, my concern is that if you leave it to the private sector, private sector has a tendency towards monopolies. Tri private sector have a tendency of accumulating power uh, if it is not checked in some form. And the only power capable of checking this tendency uh, is a state. There is no mm -hmm. other power capable of doing it. I mean, now, neoliberalists will argue morality, or tradition or culture uh, should be able to do it. But there's absolutely no evidence that other morality or culture in any culture actually manages to check that. Uh, and so, and so the, way, the way I look at it, uh, there is no alternative to the government standing behind all of that in order to ensure that there is sufficient degree of trust to transact. Either it's registering your documents uh, or it's generating an alternative currency that needs to be accepted widely uh, or whatever that is. Only the government. The way usually compares to Bank of Amsterdam uh, versus the Bank of Netherlands. Now, Bank of Amsterdam tried to create uh, effectively a stable coin uh, back in the uh, 1500s and early 1600s. But human nature, being human nature, undermined that stable currency uh, or stable coin. And it really took uh, the Dutch government creating the Bank of Netherlands uh, to resurrect that degree of, of stability. So, so to, to, to answer your question, you need to have institutional factors, um, but behind those institutional factors supporting it has to be state. Now, if society disagrees with that, 
uh, then society is free to dismantle state. Uh, and in many historical uh, episodes, that's exactly what happened. People dismantled the institutions that actually guaranteed uh, that degree of trust. Uh, and as they always say, there is no point of arguing with people. If they made up their mind, you just need to wait for them to change their mind. Uh, there is no point of, st of, of standing in front of the, you know, a tractor or something, uh, because they're going to do what they're going to do. So, so hopefully that's the answer. Uh, and that's why I, I, am I, I truly believe that only, only the state uh, can reinforce us. Victor, so, uh, Victor respect, with all due respect, are, are, are you a modern day Walter Durante? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I, I don't quite get this thing over here about the state. I mean, it's not like I'm a, a nut job here, but you know, you're, I, I haven't seen this kind of government control work, I mean, reasonably anywhere. And when last time I checked, when the people went and stood in front of the tank, they, they got almost run over you know, in Tiananmen Square. I, I mean, I've never seen the people go and kind of take vote to take back power without getting, you know, put in the gulag. Well, <clears throat> whenever people say freedom or the power, uh, I always ask power to do what? Uh, and, and freedom from what? Uh, and, and people are always confused. Everybody wants freedom, but they're not quite sure what to do with it. And they're not quite sure why they, uh, why they need it. Uh, and, and so, <clears throat> and so, Governments or states are a reflection of people. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, when people say that there is that there is all sorts of problem in Washington and disorientation in Washington, because American people are disoriented. Uh, when people say, how come in 1950s and 60s we could do great projects uh, and we can't agree now? Because in 1950s and 60s, people agreed. Uh, and that's why politics reflected it. And politics can never run ahead of the people. And so whenever you come to a stage that society is polarized and disoriented, and that happened in 1920s and 1930s, that also happened between, call it 1966, 67, all the way to early 1980s, uh, and it is happening now. When society cannot agree uh, on the structure of society, structure of the economy, uh, then chaos rules because extremes take over. And extremes never give you the right answer, whether it's a total control by the state, which is, say, China, or whether it's complete freedom uh, to do anything you want. Uh, so, so the population needs to agree. So if you think of uh, pre-baby boomers, having suffered from a Great Depression, having suffered from World War II and many other things, <clears throat> clearly the parents of baby boomers have come to believe that the state represents the guardrail against violence that otherwise will engulf them because they've seen that violence and they've seen what that violence can do. <clears throat> and so the, the conclusion was that we're prepared to trade our rights we as people in the United States will trade uh, some of our rights in for the government doing certain things. Uh, and so if you think of 50s and early 60s, that was not a liberal era by any stretch of imagination. And it was not a free era by any stretch of imagination. Uh, but what they were getting is the, uh, is the highways, their roads, they were getting suburb suburbs, they're getting a college education, expansion uh, of the educational system, they're getting massive 
uh, basic uh, R&D. Remember, a basic R&D used to be the biggest chunk, apart from defense, what the federal government used to do uh, back in 1950s and 1960s. Now, baby boomers who did not see the disruption, did not see those problems, basically wanted freedom. You know, I want to be free to marry anybody I want, to divorce anybody I want, to choose my job, to choose my country, to leave uh, the country, to do whatever I want to do. And whether it was a Woodstock, whether it was smoking drugs, whether it was becoming an investment banker, it doesn't matter. It was the same argument. The argument was one of freedom. And so on the shoulders of baby boomers came Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Milton Friedman and, and, and the rest of it. Now we're paying the price for that freedom uh, okay, so and a price. Clock's running down here. As we, as we march towards this kind of Karl Marx utopia, what is the, um, where should I be putting my money? This is an investment show, not, not sure. tomorrow, not 10 years, but like, give me a one to two year horizon. What should I be, where are the places that would be, you know, I'd I, I make a profit on an investment. Uh, well, uh, one or two years is very short, short term. So basically what, I, what I've been arguing for- I'll give you while, five years. Uh, what I've been, if you, think, if you think shorter term, what I've been arguing for a while that, uh, that uh, inflation is transitory. Um, I uh, never left the transitory camp. Uh, and the reason I never left the transitory camp, because transitory for me is not about the time it takes to bring inflation down, but rather about the tissue scarring, scarring of the labor market, the household sector, the corporate sector, the financial sector that it leaves behind. If there is no tissue scarring, then it is transitory, whether it takes a year or two or three, and therefore, to me, it's much more comparable to inflation of 1919, 1921, and 1946, 48, 49, <clears throat> rather than 1970s. Now, if you take that view, then the answer is the only way we can boil the inflation or continue to boil the inflation is either we have to have a very expansionary fiscal policy, which we do not have right now and will not have until 25 at the earliest, or we have to have aggressive redistribution policy, which we do not have. Alternatively, we have to have a geopolitical and social blow-ups, which in my view are not going to happen over the next couple of years. Longer term it will, but not over the next couple of years. ESG and everything else, that's a longer term stuff. So to me, unless we spend fiscally and expand the fiscal deficit or use the same deficits to redistribute the money, or unless we have black swans, whether it's pandemics, uh, whether it's wars or geopolitics, inflation will fall off. Now, the question is how much it's going to fall off. And that comes back to your question of de deflation. We have a strong disinflationary pressures, technology, financialization, debt, demographics, inequalities. But we also now have inflationary pressures that we did not have uh, in 1990s, 2000s. Now, where do those inflationary pressures coming from? They essentially come from our response to the black swans, mm -hmm. because we are now responding very aggressively through fiscal and monetary policies. And whatever we do, it causes a spike. But then if we stop doing it, that spike just comes off. And so my argument for the last two years was that normal distribution of outcomes is gone. So in other words, uh, we now have extreme outcomes or fat tails or black swans are too prevalent. In statistical terms, it basically means kurtosis is very high. 
When you have that, there is no average. So when people say, I think average inflation will be 4%, I guarantee they're wrong. Uh, because inflation will be six and zero, but it won't be four. So in other words, you won't have the ability to compute the average. As soon as you say normal distribution doesn't exist, then DCF is gone. Uh, because what you're therefore dealing with is a world with very unstable neutral rates. Neutral rates could be up to 6% and down to 1% in the space of 12 months or less. Uh, if you have such instability of neutral rates, that means you have instability of risk-free rates. And because you have so many black swans, your ability to assess risk premium also diminishes. So it becomes a weird investable world in a sense that traditional normal distribution where you can assess the outcome, you could look back in history and say over the last 30 or 40 years, this was the answer, uh, can no longer be used. So how do you invest in that climate? Well, I identified three or four ways of investing. Number one, uh, trade a lot. Um, and people blame me saying, of course, you'll say that you work for a bank. <clears throat> but uh, if, if nobody knows which way is up or down, if nobody knows whether neutral rate is six or one, uh, if nobody knows what the benchmark should be, one way of uh, dealing with that is to take the signals from the market. Market gives you signals every day, every day. You just refuse to look at them or you refuse to believe them or you refuse to accept them or you argue with them. Well, stop arguing. <clears throat> whatever, the, whatever the signals are, use them. Uh, and if you're a good trader, you could do two out of three. So in other words, out of three moves you make, maybe two uh, are going to be profitable. Now, that sort of investment is much more conducive to machines than humans. Uh, but I think that's one way of handling it. The other way of handling it, and the way I basically describe it, it's like, uh, you know, Cassie Wood approach. You nail your colors to the mast and you sail. Uh, and I don't care whether you are into nuclear bunkers, trees and commodities, or whether you are into deflation uh, and intangible assets, but be very clear uh, what you want uh, and very clear what you're all about. In the world of lack of clarity, clarity will be significantly rewarded. So more and more people will not be asking you how much money you're going to make me, but rather, what do you stand for? Uh, and if you have a pedigree, you can adopt it. Now, if those two alternatives don't work, the third alternative that I recommend to everybody is what I call resilient portfolios. <clears throat> and what I mean by resilience, at the time of uh, extreme uncertainty, uh, high kurtosis, uh, very unstable neutral rates and risk-free rates, um, you should always go with productivity and circular drivers. Uh, in other words, productivity drivers is basically whenever you think productivity will accelerate faster than the multiples uh, that you're paying. And it doesn't really matter what industry it happens to be in. Uh, circular drivers is your circular strengths. This is somewhat Cassie Wood approach in a sense um, I have several things I like, things like replacement of humans, robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, augmentation of humans, which is a fusion of infotech and biotech. Um, if humans becoming less relevant, that could be dangerous. So uh, I have opium of the people. Uh, it's, uh, it's gambling, gaming, uh, uh, artificial reality. Because I'm a great believer that longer term social and polarization dislocation will continue to grow, I have part of the portfolio that we call bullets and prisons. In other words, buying into companies that are offering products 
that actually participate or uh, does some of that security and safety elements. Uh, there are areas like alternative transport uh, 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 energy platforms. Victor, uh, let me pause you for one second. And, 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 and then one more. Uh, yep. there, is, there, are, there are areas of commodities that I like. Yeah. And there are areas of capital goods companies that I like. They're not all commodities, but there are areas which look very, very attractive to me. Uh, and there are said, some capital goods uh, related areas that do as well. So um, the reason I wanted to pause you for a second is let me just summarize very quickly. And I think it actually fits pretty well with what Harley believes, right? Which is one, you're actually talking about, you know, we don't know whether interest rates should be higher or lower but we know that they should be different and variable. And so ultimately that would suggest that you wanna buy some form of protection against much higher rates. Your base case would probably be that you wanna bet on lower rates, right? So That's right. that would lead you to a position strongly favoring lower rates after a Fed hiking cycle, for example, but the potential for that to go much greater, right? Um, That's right. People may be aware that there are some products that Harley has created that fit well with that underlying phenomenon. The second component that I would highlight is, is that you're effectively saying, look, the complaints that people made, if you really take yourself back to 1999 and you looked at the complaints that were made about Amazon, for example, it was, can you believe that Amazon is more richly valued than Barnes and Noble? Right now, yes. the answer, of course, was, well, absolutely it should have been, right? And so your point is, is that for all the hoopla and all the complaints about Kathy Wood, that she in, is, is in reality actually looking in the right area. She's looking she at does. this she disruptive does. technology. We can disagree with everything she's saying. We can disagree with That's her right. choices, but it's a That's really, right. really important component. I want to take a That's few right. minutes and we don't have much time. But maybe, Michael, maybe, maybe one more thing yep. I'll highlight that what is regarded as disruptive changes over time. Absolutely. So for, totally for example, agree. if you think of a large digital platforms, my view, particularly consumer platforms, my view for a while was that they're sunsetting. Mm -hmm. uh, they're gradually, they're gradually dying. Uh, and companies are the most profitable before they die. Uh, so, so what was working for the previous 15 years is not going to be the same what's going to work for the next 15 years. So the nature of those circular drivers and the companies or assets that play into it changes. But okay. please go ahead. So, so, so let me just flip through a couple of quick things. Um, one, we have a question from Kevin uh, in the audience or more of an observation, right? Which is that your line of thought is actually the exact opposite of the founders of the U American constitution, right? That if the founders of the American constitution had actually believed what you're saying, that they would have created a far more restrictive and intrusive government. I'm gonna push back actually against Kevin and highlight that the American founders initially tried that. They created the Articles of Confederation, which turned out to be a disaster because it did not give them the ability to influence things in the way that you're describing. One of the very first actions of the, the Washington administration was the suppression of the Whiskey Rebellion, which wanted to not pay taxes, right? So absolutely correct. The dynamics of Alexander Hamilton, I encourage people to go read the survey of manufacturers that he wrote in 17, uh, 1796, I think it was, right? Which highlights exactly this dynamic of state capacity, state, state planning, and how that led to the actual growth of America that we have. The story that most people hear is simply wrong. The second chart that I actually have had up and over for a while in the background is this dynamic of the state of dissatisfaction, right? And so one of the things that I would just highlight is 
if I look at the actual surveys of workers' satisfaction with these jobs that we're so worried about them holding on to, they all hate them, right? 19% of the population in a 3.5% unemployment environment has labeled themselves as being miserable. 60% of the people are detached, right? So what you're actually describing is a situation in which we could offer a very tangible improvement over time. And I'm going to go quickly here. I apologize, right? If I look at the second dynamic that's going on, and I highlight this as no more teachers, no more books, right? Um, we are actually on a global basis looking at a contraction of the population for those under the age of 24, 25 that is effectively here, right? We're no longer looking at growth in that population. That suggests a radical restructuring of many of the forms of services that we're, we're discussing. And exactly as you're highlighting, a meaningful change in restructuring to the educational system. I'm going to keep going here for a second, right? How long has this been going on? You hit on the idea of ChatGPT and the criticisms that, hey, it's not perfect. It's not innovative. It doesn't create its own stuff, et cetera, right? These are all very similar to the complaints and observations that were made about technology in the past because the reality is they weren't perfect, right? The simple reality is, is that a skilled artisan is typically going to be dramatically better than the initial crude attempts at automation, but that rapidly changes, right? So today, if you're extraordinarily rich, you may hire an Italian craftsman to sculpt marble for you, but the vast majority of the rest of us powder up marble and put it into a cast surface and we couldn't care less. There's no difference between the two, right? Okay, um, let's see here. And, oh, I lost, all right. So I wanted to do one last thing and this is on the innovative part. And I know that Harley loves the music of the day. So this is something that actually I came across. Where is it? Uh, that's not it. Oh, that's what I wanted to go for. Let's go to this. So this is actually something that I was just exposed to by my friend, Josh Wolf. And this goes to the dynamics of productivity in the services space. You may be familiar with ChatGPT, Harley, but have you heard of Eleven Labs yet? Okay, so Eleven Labs is an audio version, among other things. It's a multimedia version of ChatGPT. I know you're a huge fan of music. This is actually the result of having fed Eleven Labs all the material, all the work of Jay-Z's, right? So the rapper, oh, the slide's not showing. Hold on one sec here, I'll reshare it. And I encourage people to look at stuff like this, right? So this is actually not Jay-Z performing. This is an AI having been fed all of Jay-Z's material to create a Jay-Z-like outcome. And tell me if you can hear this. Can you guys hear this? No, I cannot. All right, hold on one sec. Okay, I'm gonna try this one more time. Okay. Can you hear it now? No. Oh, all right. I'll, we'll send this out, I apologize. People can see my screen. Search for Jay-Z versus generated by AI in YouTube. This is an extraordinary listen. Um, it is one of these things that for me, absolutely changed treasure financial and Charlie McGarrett of Altus partners to discuss the tools, techniques, and products used in modern treasury management. You won't want to miss it. Take care, everyone. Thank you.
Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.